maybe. Look how Andy does it. Like, as close to the edge as possible. Good morning. I'm excited. Lots to talk about today. There was a young man, he was 15 years old, and he woke up one morning, and it was a bit different from the mornings prior because his father didn't have to shake him awake anymore. And he got up, and he, it's way before sunrise. The windows were open. The, the brisk air is coming through. He could, still, he could smell the salt from the sea already. So as he gathered up his belongings for work, and he kind of started out his trek, he reflected upon the years he had been doing this now, about, about three, ever since he got out of school. You know, like a good, like a good kid in his, in his village, he, he was five years old, and he, when he was turned five, he, he went to school, and he, and he learned the scriptures, and he meditated on them, and he practiced and studied and studied and practiced, but he was never quite the top of the class. And when he turned 12 years old, uh, in, instead of like some of the other top-level uh, boys in his class, he had to go and do his father's trade. And so he got into that trade, and he's been doing that now for three years as he's making his trek to work in the morning. He's reflecting on this, and man, I, if I would have studied harder, maybe I could have gone and picked, a, picked another teacher to teach me when I was 12. Maybe I could have done some other things. And as he's walking this way and he's carrying his belongings, he gets to the seashore. And he gets his stuff and he's loading up the boat and his dad's handing him some stuff and he's, and he's going out. And they fish. And as the sun rises and they're bringing the catch in and they're bringing their boat back to shore and he's, he's gathering, he's, he's salty, he's dirty, there's a, there's a brine on his whole body he hears something on the shore. Follow me. I'll make you a fisher of men. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the opportunity to look into your word. To not just get a peek, but a full-on view of the glory that is your heart. May we hear from you and may we see that this morning. Amen. So we've, we've, we've looked at discipleship and I had to like schedule a time I came in here because I need to know what the lead pastor is saying about it before I can come in here and be like, this is my thing. Um, so discipleship and just... And some of the most like simple terms that I can get into it, whether it's with kids or whatever it happens to be, discipleship is just making me more like Jesus. That's, that's it. Because that is the ultimate goal. That is, the, that is why we are here as Christians, and we'll get more into that. Okay. But discipleship is just the process of making me more like Jesus. Now, this isn't a solo effort. It cannot be. It will never be. Um, 
So as we look at what we're looking at this morning, we need to remember that what discipleship is, it is a process of making me more like Jesus, making as a disciple and as a discipler. Okay? There is this path happening. It isn't just me to someone else or uh, someone else to me. It is the full-on process. So as we look at that this morning, we're looking at Matthew chapter 18, 1 through 5. Because as we particularly look at children, and we look at discipling children, as that is our focal point this morning, uh, there's a fantastic passage, technology, okay? 18, chapter 1. At the time the disciples came to Jesus and asked, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? What an adult question to ask. He called a little child and had him stand among them. And he said, I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes a little child like this in my name welcomes me. What an adult question to ask. That's who's the greatest? Who like when I get into discipling kids, talking with kids about some really deep spiritual things, some of the questions that I received back there from some of y'all's beautiful children are amazing because it Okay, that's an interesting question. But they're truly seeking the answer to that. They're truly seeking knowledge gained so that they can change and do something with it. An adult question is, you know, who's the greatest? Where do I get some glory? Where's, 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 what's in it for me? That's an adult question. And that's not a good question either. So my, so my question this morning is, what makes a child so special? Like, why does Jesus have to, why does Jesus say, like, you need to become like him, this little child? And what makes a child so special? I think number one, first and foremost, is that a child doesn't seek glory. My kids are the, the loves of my life and also the, sometimes the bane of my existence. But <laughs> they ask questions all the time. Um, one of them isn't necessarily a question, but the statement, the definitive, watch this! Watch me! Daddy, watch, daddy, watch, daddy, watch, mommy, watch, mommy, watch. Okay! I'm watching. Now, it's not for glory, but for your love, for your acceptance, for your pleasure, for your smile, right? And it's hard to remember that in that moment sometimes when it's the 56,000th time they've asked that time in the car ride in the van. But... 
There's, there's nothing malicious behind that. They haven't learned to be malicious yet. As far as, you know, what the question, what they're seeking is like. Teachableness. I think teachableness is a big thing that kids have. Most, most kids have. And, and there's a difference between that and like kids, like the general kids and kids today. So we're going to transition here and some issues that kids have today. In addition to be children's pastor here, I teach at George Jenkins High School. So kids today, I have a particularly interesting perspective on in general, and it kind of goes back to some original reading I did growing up many years ago. Uh, so I'm going to um, look at uh, Maslow's needs. We have that slide up here? <laughs> okay. Uh, I am a psychology major by, by education, um, not by practice. Um, and this is a wonderful, <clears throat> terrible, uh, kind of pyramid of needs that Maslow, who's a psychologist, a humanist, um, believed that every individual needs to go through. And it's kind of interesting because you've got your physical needs, your security needs, social, ego, and self-actualization. Self-actualization, you can attribute this to identity or purpose. Um, and it's not that bad. Like... It's pretty self-centered, because it's a humanistic point of view. Um, he includes nothing for spirituality at all, because humanism. But like physical security, social, those are pretty all good, important needs for people, children, to grow up and be, a, be attributed to that. We can see if physical and security needs are ever not met, how that, that takes effect on kids with abuse, neglect, things of that nature, that obviously ends up happening. But as you go up the hierarchy here, because it is a going up the hierarchy, you get to this, the need for development, creativity, the ego, the, the identity, the purpose, and, and that is like the ultimate kind of thing attributed. But again, there's no spiritual growth here. There's nothing that goes along with that. Um, so I don't really like it when I studied psychology. It was it was like, oh, this is, oh, wait. It's like, it was like that one moment, like, hey, this is looking so far so good, and then nothing. Because uh, I don't believe there's any part, any possible change outside of the blood of Christ anyway. So when you have this, you look at this, you say, this is lacking something. So next slide, here's my, here's my answer. There it is. <laughs> and in the spirit of children, I drew it myself and colored it with crayons. Okay. Fundamentally, we have Jesus, you know, providing safety, security, and physical needs, and everything else. Of course, and he just goes up the ladder. And, you, and again, this is very simplistic. And there's a difference between simple and simplistic. Simplistic typically is like the, the answer you get when, like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling uh, depressed or anxious or anxiety, something like that. And someone just says, oh, smile, God loves you, you're fine. Okay, hold on. That's a bit simplistic. And you know it right away when you hear it. Same with this. This is a bit simplistic. So we're going to get into the, the uh, more, more nitty-gritty with this as we continue on. But again, it's accurate, but simplistic. So as we continue on, let's, uh, let's look at this little excerpt that I found. In the 1950s, kids lost their innocence. 
They were liberated by, from their parents by well-paying jobs, cars, lyrics, and music that gave a rise to a new term, the generation gap. In the 1960s, kids lost their authority. It was a decade of protest. Church, state, and parents were all called into question and found wanting. Their authority was rejected, yet nothing new replaced it. In the 1970s, kids lost their love. It was a decade of meism dominated by hyphenated words beginning with self, self-esteem, self-image, self-assertion. It made for a lonely world. Kids learned everything there was to know about sex and forgot everything there was to know about love. And no one had the nerve to tell them there was a difference. In the 1980s, kids lost their hope. Stripped of innocence, authority, and love, and plagued by the horror of nuclear nightmare, large and growing numbers of this generation stopped believing in the future. In the 1990s, kids lost their power to reason. Less and less were taught the very basics of language, truth, and logic, and they grew up with the irrationality of the postmodern world. In the lunar millennium, kids woke up and found out that somewhere in the midst of all of this change, they had lost their imagination. Violence and perversion entertained them until none could talk of killing innocents since none was innocent anymore. It's from the book Recapture the Wonder by Ravi Zacharias. And if our call is to protect and to nurture and to disciple the least of these, we need to protect and nurture first the innocents. The wonder. My son, he's four years old. Zeke is, Zeke is a monster. He doesn't look for. But every night for who knows how long now, he has wanted story time. I love story time. I love telling stories. It's just a part of who I am, personality. I love it. And I love that my son loves it right now. And what's amazing at this point in his life is that if I start a story, the prince had a green tiger and they found a door. Instantly, like his face is like, <laughs> now if I tell the same story to just my seven-year-old, Prince had a green tiger and they found a door. She's like, okay, and? They opened the door. Okay, I'm getting interested now. The older we get, the more it takes to fill our hearts with wonder. And in the end, skipping a bunch of stuff in between that statement and this, God is the only thing big enough to do it. Whether you're four or you're 104. The more it takes to fill your heart with wonder, and only God is big enough to do it. So as we, as we think about, again, this innocence, this wonder, if, if the kids, thinking generationally, if, if it was lost in the 50s, it's something that's fought for and lost every single generation that comes up, every single child that is born that comes through my door at George Jenkins, that is born in my house, that comes over to my house, that comes through the doors here. They all have the same battles. They all have the same targets on their backs, and that is at their innocence, at their sense of wonder. 
and at these other things that were mentioned here by Ravi and a few that were left out. Innocence and wonder. I love the story of feeding the 5,000, not because like it's a huge miracle, look at Jesus providing for all of these people, but it was a boy. You know, and it was a mother probably who packed the lunch. Let's just be honest with ourselves because the dad like, no, mm -mm, I'm not, I'm forget that. Yeah, go, go see Jesus. You're good. You're out of my hair for the day, which is another thing. Whoa, wait a minute. But two loaves and, you know, five loaves, two fish shows up. One of Jesus' disciples who was a young man himself. Again, they were between the ages of 15 to 20 something. Say, hey, there's a boy over here he's got some, who's got some fish and some bread. And the boy's like, yeah. You need it, Jesus? You can, I mean, you can have it. You can, maybe the boy expected just Jesus to eat it. Maybe Jesus was hungry. You know, it was that meal time. And this boy, the innocence, the wonder... My Lord, my Savior, do you, do you need this? Do what you want with it. It's all I brought, but here you go. I, I love it, the innocence, the wonder that is there. Uh, looking at the next thing, you look at authority, fear, and respect. Like the idea that, and, and I deal with this all the time, like coming into my room, I got a bunch of teenagers that show up to think that they are the center of the known universe. But they're not because I am, because it's my classroom. Um, <laughs> I tell them that too. It's welcome to my world. Um, but the, the fear, the, the, the authority, the fear uh, of God, the respect of those in power, those around you, that were put there for a specific purpose by a specific being. And we'll touch on that more of that later. But that, that's the idea here. We've lost, the kids have lost their, their, their sense of not only innocence and wonder, but now of authority, respect. And it's something that when you, when you see children that don't have this, it's evident first and foremost how their kids pe treat their own parents. And it angers me so much. There's something that wells up in me that it's like, okay, you're not going to mind them, but you're going to mind me because I'm standing right here. It, 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 there's something in me that's just, mm. but again, it's, it's, it's the respect, you know, it's the only promise I tell my kids, it's the only promise that's in scripture that you'll live longer. Respect your parents. <laughs> yeah, you respect your parents. You're going to live longer because they won't kill you. <laughs> <laughs> All right, but yeah, the authority, the respect is there, and 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 nurturing this in kids. I think the 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 biggest thing here, and we'll get into this more, little preview, is to be a guide, not a general. Love. So about in the seventies, they lost their love. How do kids know what love is? Because of what you do and what you say and then by what you do. 
It's typically in that order, what you do, what you say, and then what you do. And modeling that and that unconditional love is the only way they're going to experience, at least in the beginning of their lives, what it means for Jesus to love them. If you're the earthen vessel, love. And being real about what the world says it is. That's a big kettle of fish I'll leave over there because that's smelly and stinky. I don't like it. Okay, for now. But love, how they know it by what you do, then what you say, and then by what you do after you've said something. Hope and belief. And again, in the, in the 80s, Ravi would say, like, you've, they've lost their hope. They've lost their belief. Um, they've lost, and they've lost all this because they've lost all this other stuff along the way. And as these things are just falling off of the ship, the ship can no longer sail. It's just going to get stuck. And they've lost their hope. They've lost the belief. And the danger in our kids and my kids isn't that they're going to you know, start believing nothing. There's no danger there. You start believing nothing. The danger is they start believing everything and anything that's said to them. There's a big difference. Because when they start believing anything, I mean, yeah, the sky is purple, and on Thursdays it's green, and everything's fine. Like, it's wonderful. I mean, that's, that's a completely simplistic kind of example. But again, it's, if, if they believe what they are told... There are way too many inputs into their lives today to have that happen. Peers, parents, school, internet, and that could cover like the next like 16,000 categories. There's way too many inputs. But hope, belief, training a child in the way they should go and they will not depart. Hold on to that one, parents. I do. <laughs> Reason. We lost the, the kids, you know, and I'm, I am a product, you know, the, born in the 80s, kid of the 90s. This one was a big one for me, and it was a big target on my back when I was growing up, was targeting my reason, and I experienced this, and then I compl- and, and in that, um, for a long time, I'm a youth pastor's kid. For a long time, I just basically held the belief, you know, God doesn't exist. And I got into, uh, into reading Nietzsche and these philosoph- uh, philosophy books and psychology books that were just, they fed the presupposition that I made about the world that God doesn't exist. And the attack on my reason just kind of began in, in, in an anger position because I was angry at my dad and angry at God because he took my dad. He took my dad into the ministry. How dare he take my dad? my dad? My dad loves that ministry more than he loves me and my brothers. And that was real. That's life. That's what I fight every day for my kids. I fight that mentality. And so when, when you look at reason, and even, even in, the, in Scripture, God, God says, come, let us reason together, though your sins be crimson, I'll make you white as snow. 
Paul will take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. My life basically changed when I was finally, I, I finally had to get my reason back. God gave it back to me, and there were only two questions that really mattered to me at that moment in time, and that was, God, do you exist? Yeah, I do, Jamie. I'm, I've been here. Cool. Why do I? Because I do. Okay, God, in my reasoning and in the reasoning you give me, that's enough for now. We'll get some more later. Okay? And then life continued on from there. The last thing that Ravi mentions here in the new millennium, because again, this book, Recapture the Wonder, was written a while back ago. The kids lose their imagination. This is, to this is a total, like, duh thing. Of course, they're going to lose imagination because they can see anything they want. They can do anything they want with the tech, with, with the opportunity and everything here. Um, but unfortunately, imagination is a God-given thing. Beauty is a God-given gift. And the interesting thing about beauty and imagination, how they work hand-in-hand -hand with things, is they heal. Whenever I've experienced a deep hurt in my life, a deep wound emotionally, what honestly heals me the most is getting quiet in a beautiful place and listening to God. Beauty has this healing, like the natural God-given beauty of a place, of a situation, of a, of a thing, of a person, just has this healing like quality to it. And then use that in tandem with God's Spirit and, and the Holy Spirit. It's just, it's a beautiful thing. And when we lose that imagination, we lose the ability to just What's the future? Like, where can, what can we do? And it's just, it's a mess. Finally, I have a modern disagreement with Ravi Zacharias because he ended there. And there's much more that's happened in the past 20 years or so with our kids. And that is, kids and students have lost their identity. They have lost their purpose but mainly their identity. Um, and this can be seen all over the country uh, in the different uh, gender identities that are coming up now. Um, you have children that are struggling with identity with who they are. The beautiful thing and the beautiful answer to this is you are made by a loving God. You are who God says you are. And that's a beautiful thing. There's life. There's beauty. There's imagination. There's wonder. There's glory. There's power. There's all these beautiful things that come out of, I was made with an identity already planned. And living where I'm meant to be in that identity, I have a purpose. It is folly, and I would say it is sin, to say, I am not that anymore. I am what I am going to be over here now on my own. 
and it gets dangerous. So the real question again, identity and purpose, who is God and who does God say that I am? And leading children, leading teenagers to that. Who does God say you are? So as we look at practical steps to do this and kind of closing out with some practical things, because again, it's great to wax poetically about philosophy and all this wonderful stuff, but I like kitchen table conversations. I don't like, like academic arenas like this. Kitchen table conversations. How do I do the stuff? When, does, when it matters, when it's real, like how does that look? What does that do? Because of course, we need to protect the innocence of kids, the wonder, their their, their respect for authority, their, their, their reason, their belief, their ability to love, all of these things we need to protect and keep in a, in a, in a safe, uh, safe place and model it. We'll get there. But the practical steps to disciple children, in my humble opinion, uh, number one, be intentional. Intentional. Those of you who are looking at me with blank faces. Done on purpose, deliberate, calculated, conscious, intended, meant, studied, knowing, willful, purposeful, purposive, done on purpose, premeditated, ooh, ooh, I like, ooh, I like that one, preplanned, preconceived, be intentional, you mean I, I can't wing it? No. Be intentional is the number one. Number one, be intentional. Number two, you'll love it. Be intentional. Okay. Poet put it this way. If chance be the father of all flesh, then disaster is his wake in the sky. And when you hear whites go looting, people on a rampage, shooters on a rampage, it's just the sound of man worshiping his maker. If chance be the father of all flesh. So, be intentional. You don't leave it to chance. You don't leave it to, oh, you know, my son will find his way to Jesus one day. No! He won't. Show him the way. And if he rejects you, he rejects Jesus, and then you just pray, and you pray, and you pray, and you pray. And you love. Be intentional. Set realistic expectations. And it's hard. My son looks like he's 14 years old and he's four. And I'm like, dude, you shouldn't be doing that. He's four. It's hard. I set my kids up for failure all the time in my head because I think like, you, you, you're not there yet. And it's me. I'm doing that. It's not them. Set realistic expectations. They're kids. Kids require automatically about three times more space than adults do. So technically, this should be my, church, my, my kid's church room, and y'all should be in there, just saying. It's going to happen one day. I'm going to do it. But like kids require the space and they have needs to move and to do things and to make mistakes. And that's okay. Let's learn from that. What do we, what do we need to do? Let's get down. 
You know, you know what the most beautiful thing this year that I've absolutely loved is communion time? Because I love seeing this. Families like this with their kids. Do you know what the bread means? What does the bread mean? And, you, and, and the discussion is, I love it so much. It's so beautiful to me. But set realistic expectations. That's your practical step. Keeping it Jesus-focused, we had the chart. It was beautiful. It was colored in crayon. But keeping Jesus the focus, Jesus the center, okay? It has to be that way. You'll, you'll know right away if it isn't. <laughs> we'll get to there too. Being a guide, not a general. I kind of previewed this earlier, but being a guide, not a general. Like, yes, you need, your kids will need correction. Children will need correction. Teenagers will need correction. They'll need it. Okay, but again, like, be the guide, not the general, authoritative. Quickest way to get a nice teenage boy to not go to church is to tell them they have to. Now, I still had to. And I was there in body. That's it. Be a guide. Be a guide. Show them the better way yourself. Next practical thing, feed yourself. Feed yourself. You're going to be trying to teach kids the way. <clears throat> Better be feeding yourself. Otherwise, you're trying to pour out from an empty vessel. Model the behavior. Do it. Be a doer of the word. Do it. Kids, teenagers, they watch everything. They know when you've stepped out of line, probably before you do. Do it. And when you mess up, because you will, Be the adult and go first to apologize. I'm sorry. I, I, I can't tell you the number of times I've had to apologize to my kids. I've lost count. Because that's my millstone. In Matthew 18, 6. But if anyone causes one of these little ones to believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a large millstone hung around his neck and be drowned into the depths of the sea. I don't think Jesus is prone to hyperbole. I think he legitimately means that. In fact, I'm very certain he does. It's, it's better that you just go drown in the sea than having to cause these little ones who believe in me to sin. Clayton's not here this morning. Well, maybe he is. He's back there. Hi, Clayton. Clayton didn't get me a millstone. I asked for one last week. It's okay, buddy. I was going to have it up here. It was going to be a nice dramatic like prop because I like props. But, you know, it's probably better off because I would have then tied it to myself and we, it would have been messy. Um, but, yeah, the number of times I have to apologize to my kids 
and the number of times I should have just been drowned. Thank God for his grace. Last couple things here. Connect deep to your church as a practical step to help discipling children. Connect them deeply to the church. And this isn't just like some promo for the LV kids. No, connect them deep to the church, whether that's here, it's somewhere where the kids, they learn, they grow, they're in the Bible, they're looking at what the Bible actually says, and they want to be in that room. They want to not miss. They want, you want them to have deep connection to the church. Pray with them. Pray with them. Come on, kids, let's get together. Let's, let's pray for one another. Let's pray as a family. Let's do it. Pray for them. Yes, of course. There's probably not a breath that, you, that parents don't take that's like, God, please. Or please, God. That's not actually praying, but, you know, but the, like, the prayers are always coming like, help them, help me, help them. But pray with them, modeling the behavior, doing the stuff. So that they can see what it looks like to do the word of the Lord. Pray with them. The last thing, practical solution, practical thing to take with you. Be intentional. Please. Be intentional. Have a plan premeditated, dedicated to what you want them to do to follow Jesus, to become more like Jesus. And guess what? In doing so, in committing to that, you become more like Jesus. Because this is what Jesus did. Come, follow me. Be a fisher of men. Follow what I'm doing. Do what I'm doing. Yes, things get ugly. Things get terrible. And this is the cost of discipleship. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the cost of discipleship is that a man is asked to die. Again, the same price every day. Die, 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 die. That is the cost. What we've done today is we've, made, we've, we've cheapened grace. Grace is now the justification of the sin and not the sinner. When you're not discipling, when you're not being discipled and discipling others, you've taken grace and cheapened it. I need to settle down. <laughs> when you cheapen grace... What you become as a Christian is that your duty is solely and only in showing up on Sunday morning for an hour and making sure your sins are forgiven and then moving on. When you cheapen grace, that's what you do. When grace is costly, it costs everything. And it is impossible without discipleship. It is impossible without taking someone who needs to be led and learn and taught what it is to follow Christ, but also someone coming to you saying, this is how I've gotten to this point. It's generational. It must be. It's what Jesus did. Jesus called you, go and make disciples of all nations. Well, this is a nation. It's not left out. Discipleship can tolerate no conditions which might become between Jesus and our obedience to him. 
And if Jesus said, make disciples, you'll better do it. In the end, the way you disciple people is the same way you disciple children. Because we're supposed to be like children. We're supposed to grow and learn and protect our innocence and protect the wonder and protect the love and protect the belief and the hope and the identity, the purpose that we have in Jesus Christ. It's the same. And if you're not doing it, if you're not going and making disciples, taking someone who's just younger in the faith or someone who's there with you, partnering with you, to iron sharpens iron, gentlemen. Ooh, let me get to the men. Ooh. We're notorious for just solo in it. We got this. Mm-mm. No, no. We disciple, we train. Praise be to God who trains my fingers for battle, my hands for war, said David. And that we, we train. It is purposeful. Is it intentional? It's not chance. It's not, I'm just going to live my life and hope I'm following the right way to go to God. Let's just follow. Jesus went this way, right? Intentionality, purposeful, premeditated, Discipleship can tolerate no conditions that come between Jesus and us. Our obedience to him and what he is doing. Just look finally at Samson. Read the story of Samson this week. I'm giving homework because I'm a teacher. (laughs) Read the story of Samson this week with this in mind. If you don't give Jesus lordship over one area of your life, you fail in all the others. You fail in all the others. Ouch is right. Ouch for me. If you, if you don't give Jesus lordship over just one, you fail. Everything else just falls after that. Those are my words. This is hard. The cost of discipleship is hard. It is ugly. It is brutal. That's why we hate it so much. We hate getting dirty. We fear that. We get real. Like You hate showing your limp, but here's my limp. Here's my issue. And that's how real it gets, and that's how real it should be. So it's difficult. It is a challenge. It is a cost. And we totally skipped over Luke 9, but that's okay. We don't need it. We're okay. The cross comes before the crown. Because you're told to daily take up your cross and follow Jesus. The cross comes before the crown, and tomorrow is a Monday morning. So that's when it gets really real. Let me pray for you guys. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your your passion, and your understanding of where we are and that you want to bring us closer. You want to bring us deeper. You want to bring us further in. And God, we just thank you for that. That if if we were content where we were, we no longer can be content, that we need to be premeditated and intentional with how we disciple others, not just children, but everyone that we come in contact with, 
being purposeful, going and seeking someone to disciple so that you, we may do what you have called us to do, that our joy may be complete. We thank you, Jesus, for just your love and your grace for that when we do make mistakes, when discipleship does get ugly, you know because you did it. Amen. Jamie, thank you. Yeah, that was good stuff. You staying up here? Yeah, okay, good. <laughs>